This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. From a book called No Body Homicide Cases, a practical guide to investigating, prosecuting, and winning cases when the victim is missing, by Tad Biazzi. No body murder cases are unique. Unique legally, unique factually, unique in their effect on the victim's family, friends, and loved ones. It is this uniqueness that poses a significant challenge for police and prosecutors investigating and prosecuting these cases. In the United States, records of nobody or bodiless cases go back to the 1840s, but in total, as of this writing, in February of 2014, there have been fewer than 400 nobody trials nationwide. Even with the advent of modern forensics, no-body cases that go to trial remain incredibly rare. In a murder case, the victim's body is one of the most important pieces of evidence. From that body, all sorts of things are found that help link a perpetrator to a victim. Things like cause and manner of death. In order to link a weapon to a victim, you want to be able to compare that weapon and its uses to injuries on the body. For example, as with this case, if the presumption is correct, according to multiple witnesses and Rick was shot, without the body, you can't compare a specific weapon to bullets because the bullets remain in the victim and we don't have him. Things like distance from the muzzle to the body can't be determined. So proving beyond a reasonable doubt where the shooting may have occurred and how tends to be more difficult. Here we have blood in the car in the area of the driver's seat and under it, which fits with the stories we are being told of Rick being shot in his own car by a passenger. But nothing in the car can tell us, for certain, how that blood got there. If there were no bullet holes or indications that any bullets went anywhere but into his body, and I see no indication of that in the records, then the items we would need to compare would be the bullets retrieved from Rick's body. And without his body, we can't do that. Another thing that you can't do without a body is determine time of death. And as most of you are aware, a timeline of events is critical in a criminal prosecution. Certainly when you're trying to take the statements of witnesses and weave them together, hoping to get a clear picture of what happened and when. Witness statements alone are tricky. Humans don't tend to be the best witnesses. But when you start putting multiple statements together, you start to form a picture of what happened as the puzzle pieces from which that image emerge are placed together. Still, without that baseline of time of death to anchor it all together, the image isn't as clear as you'd like it to be when you want to present it to a jury. Based on my research, the most common way to dispose of a body is burial. Although digging a hole big enough to fit a body and then covering it well enough that it's not obvious to both humans and animals is another thing entirely. For burial, one needs tools like shovels or heavy equipment that's capable of digging large holes like a backhoe. 
neither of which are foreign items in these parts. Most of the farmers I know have backhoes, and every house out here probably has multiple shovels. Shovels play an integral part in this case, which is why I think Rick is buried, or there was at least an attempt to bury him, based on the broken part of shovel that was found in his Trans Am in the trunk when it was located. There are multiple statements that mention shovels, and I spoke to at least one person who had a story about shovels, one that he had never told police. So this is what I know about that. A friend of the named suspect, a white male, drove up to this friend's house on the day he went missing, right around sunset. Two men got out of the car, one was the named suspect and one was his friend, the white male, and they went to look for something in the white male's garage, perhaps a shovel. And then they left, after giving some excuse about going digging for night crawlers. Years after Rick went missing, this friend admitted to being shown Rick's body in the trunk of a car, in another location in White Cloud, not on the baseline property. If this story is true, and he was shown Rick's body somewhere off the baseline property, you have to wonder how much driving around in Rick's car, or in another car, did the named suspect do before he decided to dispose of Rick in the place that he did. And if they were, indeed, looking for a shovel in the garage of the friend, was this after the first shovel broke? Knowing that it was a broken piece of shovel found in Rick's trunk pleases me because what that says to me is that the person or persons doing the digging did not have an easy time of it, and, pardon my language, but fuck them. I hope it was difficult. I hope it was difficult as hell. And I hope every disgusting moment of what they did haunts them to this day. I hope they broke multiple tools that are lying around somewhere still waiting to be discovered, bagged, and taken into evidence. No body cases require quite a bit of effort from the perpetrator, so generally the suspect is known to the victim. Brutalizing and then dumping a body on the side of the road is one thing, and often what you see with random offenders. But a person tied to the victim in some way tends to try and disassociate themselves from it by hiding the body. A killer trying to hide a body probably won't go to an unfamiliar area where they could risk being detected. It's more likely that they would go somewhere they know a low-traffic area. Even in murder cases where bodies are present, they're often in locations familiar to the murderer. As gruesome as it is to discuss, dismemberment is noted as being connected with burying bodies, and because it's such a laborious process, it's often done somewhere inside to keep from being seen. In this regard, as well as with burial, it's important for possible witnesses to note items that suddenly aren't there things that go missing. And these things can be as important as the ones that are there. I'd want to know from any locals if they became aware of missing tools around that time. Shovels, tarps, any items that went missing around the time of the murder that could have been associated with it, particularly if you had sons at the local high school or around that age range. If you happen to see Rick Atwood's Trans Am being driven by anyone else, on August 10th or 11th, 1983, and you never mentioned it, that's something that you'd want to mention to police as well. It does appear that the named suspect not only showed the body in the trunk to multiple people, depending on where he put Rick, he may have made multiple stops around town, with him in the trunk of the Trans Am, or even, possibly, he may have moved Rick's body into the trunk of another vehicle in order to get around undetected. 
Now I want to talk about a specific bit of blood evidence for a minute, and to do that, I need to read two paragraphs from the medical examiner's report. You and I rarely get this deep into the weeds on cases, because we generally don't spend time in crime labs listening to them discuss what a tiny piece of blood or matter can tell them. But this particular piece of evidence speaks loudly to something very troubling about our perpetrator, in addition to what Rick Atwood may have had to endure. As much as I hate to share it, I think you need to hear it. Particularly since the you I'm talking to are the people with possible information who should come forward. For anyone who feels that they will be triggered by the realities of what a piece of autopsy information might say, you should skip ahead a little bit. Quote, This specimen is sheets of red blood cells and white blood cells, interspersed in the proportions usually found in peripheral blood of a healthy person. Polygonal cells arranged in a plate-like fashion with intervening sinusoids and what appear to be central vein are present in this specimen. Also noted was a strip of pseudostratified columnar cells, which appear to possibly contain degenerated cilia at their non-nucleated end. Fibers from the paper and vegetable matter are also seen. Now he goes on to explain what that means. Quote, These findings have the appearance of a portion of liver and lung, bronchial lining, in clotted peripheral blood. Taken in context with the circumstances that this specimen was found, I believe that the subject was shot in the lower right chest area and the wound extended into the liver. Shattered fragments of the liver and lung then were rinsed out of the body by the ensuing hemorrhage. Death from this type of injury usually occurs within 3 to 15 minutes. Three to 15 minutes. By his own account, the named suspect told multiple people that he shot Rick and then dragged him out of his Trans Am and put him in the trunk. I have to assume he did that pretty quickly after firing the last bullet because I'm guessing he didn't want to sit around and wait for someone to drive by and see that he had a guy bleeding out in the driver's seat next to him. The shots themselves take mere seconds. If we give him a minute or so generously, run around the driver's side, open the door and drag Rick out of the car and then around to the back and pop the trunk, well, we've now reached the point of why I am telling you this. Three to 15 minutes. The medical examiner said he died in three to 15 minutes. Was Rick still alive when the named suspect shoved him into the trunk of his own car? We don't know where else on his body Rick was shot, but we know one thing, it's entirely, horrifyingly possible that Rick Atwood died in the trunk of his own car. And I don't know about you, but that really pisses me off. Set aside the fact that the named suspect killed him over a pound of pot and some cash, but the added insult to injury was that the poor guy may have taken his last breaths in the trunk of his own car, while this asshole killer drove around trying to decide what to do with his body. As I sum up this case, I want to talk about a few things that stood out to me as very telling. First, the named suspect bringing the car and his body to his family's house. He literally drove right up the driveway, got out, and proceeded to fetch a shovel, according to multiple witnesses. Most people, after killing someone, wouldn't consider bringing the corpse home. 
because most folks don't shit where they eat. To me, this says he knew his family would cover for him. I wonder how he knew that. Here's another thing that stood out. A couple weeks before he went missing, Rick asked a friend if he could trust the named suspect, to which the friend replied, no, I don't think you can trust him. He'll probably rip you off. If true, this would further back up the story that Rick may have been considering a drug deal with the named suspect, and it ended the exact same way that his friend had predicted. He'll probably rip you off. Another story goes like this. At some point in the day, three people were in the car, and when Rick got out to make a phone call, the named suspect pulled out a gun and said, we should rob Ricky. Since it's essentially what happened some hours later, this means the named suspect did not act on a spur-of-the-moment impulse when the shooting occurred, but he had actually thought about it sometime earlier in the day. Now, there were no other dealers mentioned in the report, except the one that Detective Miller spoke to, the one who said Rick owed him 400 bucks, and he never showed up that day to repay it. I think it's possible that Rick had another source. If he didn't visit his dealer that day to repay his debt and pick up more pot, but there was a large amount of pot in the car later that night, along with a wad of cash, Rick got that pot somewhere. Did he have another dealer in Grand Rapids? Maybe he wasn't ready to pay back his other dealer, so he picked some up elsewhere. Like one witness alleged, maybe Rick had already made arrangements earlier that morning with the named suspect for a deal later in the day. Three or four days after Rick went missing, the named suspect was allegedly showing off what was described as a three-inch stack of bills around town. Everyone knew he didn't have a job, so where'd he get all that cash? When he was asked about it, he just laughed. I believe the stories of Rick having plans to do a deal with the named suspect, a deal that went bad and ended with his death. And from the brother of the named suspect himself, he told witnesses that his brother had set up a dope deal with Rick concerning pot and about $5,000 was involved. He said Rick turned his brother onto his source. The named suspect somehow got into trouble with the dealer and Rick attempted to make the deal right. Then the named suspect killed Rick for his money and dope. This, allegedly, from his own brother. The final thing that stood out to me had to do with the girlfriend of the named suspect. Her mother and the man she lived with were both interviewed. They said that on August 11th, they got a call in the morning from a named suspect asking them to pick up his brother from the bus station in Grand Rapids and that he'd have gas money to give them for their trouble. Later in the day, they got another call, this time from the named suspect's brother asking them to come to the bus station. They did end up going later in the day, thinking that they were picking up the brother of a named suspect, only to find the suspect himself there. They say they dropped him off at his girlfriend's house, and they both insisted that she was not in Grand Rapids with them when they picked him up. Only later did they learn that the brother of the named suspect hadn't even been in Grand Rapids. He was in White Cloud at the time. To me, this is very telling. It seems as though the named suspect thought he'd have a better chance of getting them to drive 45 minutes to Grand Rapids if he wasn't the guy waiting at the other end. He literally had to lure them there to get him. And this is the mother of his girlfriend and the man she lived with. 
The red flag in this situation is that when the man who lived with the mother of the named suspect's girlfriend was questioned the first time, he denied ever picking him up at the bus station. It wasn't until he was re-interviewed with the mother of the named suspect's girlfriend present, and Detective Miller made it perfectly clear that this was about a murder investigation, that his story changed. All I could glean about the actual place where the shooting occurred was that it allegedly occurred by some railroad tracks in a river, and the car was parked. I wish I knew more about where that was, but I don't. Maybe you do. Remember how I told you that this podcast is for you? The people who have information who could come forward? Up until now, some haven't been willing to share the first-hand information that they have with police. And in doing so, they have personally signed off on how viciously Rick Atwood was treated in his final moments. Your silence in the ensuing decades has spoken more loudly than anything you could have said. There is one thing you could do to make this right, and that's tell police where Rick is. As far as I see it, that's the only way you will ever be able to make right the wrong that you participated in, at least while you continue to draw breath on this earth. Each of you must decide whether keeping the secret of a killer takes precedence over your own integrity. I imagine if you are a God-fearing person, you might also be concerned with what's going to happen when you draw your last breath. I happen to be one of those people who thinks that death is the end, so my concerns don't revolve around the afterlife. I'm concerned with the human being that you are right now, today, where accountability matters, right here, where you have it within your power to do the right thing and not take the easy way out. Your choices here determine the man you are, and I suspect that by the end of this podcast, the good people of White Cloud people you grew up with will now have a better understanding of who the responsible parties are, and you will have to live with that, knowing they're judging your actions every time they see you and avert their gaze. Those looks that they're giving you? You'll now know for sure there's something behind them. Because now they know. Before, they may have thought they knew. Maybe they wondered. Maybe they heard gossip. Maybe they thought it was someone else. Maybe they really didn't know. Well, now they do. In small towns, people know. I know that because some of you told me. I know the names of people who have first-hand information. So do the police. So do some of your family and friends. And some of you haven't told the truth to your family members and friends. Some of you have lied, because those lies got repeated back to me. And that's how I know you lied. There are plenty of people in the know and an unfortunate shortage of men who are willing to put integrity first. I really hope that changes, and I hope that for the sake of your community. The people with first-hand information about the death of Rick Atwood, not hearsay, but first-hand information, those people are in addition to the named suspect, his brother, and his father. The exact extent to which the brother and father are implicated is unknown, although at least two people knew of the brother possibly appearing at someone's house in the early morning hours of August 11th, having in some way assisted the named suspect because allegedly he was covered in bloody, muddy clothing. 
or so I'm told. As for his father, he is said to have made the comment about the pigs. And you heard what Rick's friend said the police told him the father told them. He said what? senior told the state police that some people need to be killed. <gasps> oh, my God. Exactly what the cop told me. But I think he knew that would piss me off. Huh. So they did. Other than keeping his youngest son from speaking to police when he was a minor, I don't know the extent of his knowledge about the murder. But I do know that his own son felt comfortable rolling up in his driveway in the vehicle of a dead man who he had killed and put in the trunk. So at the very least, the father of the named suspect didn't do a bang-up job of raising a decent human being. And the suggestion that more than one person in this story may have seen someone with blood and or mud on their clothing tells me that more than one person was intimately involved with Rick Atwood's body once he was dead. The last thing that I want to do before I bid you adieu is offer a bit of perspective. Most of these people were kids at the time, teenagers and early 20s. People that young do stupid shit. But only one of these young men pulled out a gun and shot Rick Atwood multiple times and then dragged him out of his own car and stuffed him in the trunk. Then he hid the body, likely with some help, at the end of which time he had a bag full of weed and a wad of cash for his efforts. I highly doubt it was worth it. Over three decades of looking over your shoulder is a heavy price to pay. That's the absurd thing here. To one person, Rick's life was only worth a bag of weed and a wad of cash. I suppose to anyone who helped cover this up, they would think that too. His life apparently wasn't worth more than the pot that they had received in payment for keeping quiet. Yeah, at least one person got some weed for his efforts. How gross is that? Is that all Rick Atwood's life was worth to you? An ounce of weed? Yes, I am talking to you right now, the handful of people who have information, but for whatever reason you withheld it. Let me ask you something, and this may be something that you've never considered, but I know this to be 100% true. You realize that he manipulated you, right? This person who showed you a body in a trunk, or told you what he did, or let you in his car where there might have been bloodstains, and you could see the evidence of what may have occurred, the pot, the money, every one of you guys, who this suspect intentionally made a witness by telling about this murder, you know why he did that, right? He thought that by making you a witness to his actions, he gained an accomplice, and you would help keep him safe. He knew that you'd lie for him. He did this knowingly, and you fell for it. He manipulated you on purpose to save his own ass. How does that feel? How does it feel, knowing that he hung that bullshit on your shoulders like a block of fucking cement that will be there until the day you die, and he did that to save his own ass? One thing's for sure. He clearly didn't give a shit about you when he did it, because if he did, he wouldn't have gotten you involved in the first place. One final thing. The named suspect and his father and his brother? Their last name? It rhymes with hell, as in the fiery pits of hell. If you're listening and you know where Rick Atwood is, 
or you have any information about his murder, you can contact Detective Sergeant Ryan Mackey, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, it's M-A-K-I, at the Michigan State Police Heart Post. I will put his email in the show notes. Be well, listeners. I'll see you next season. You know what I'm saying Trying to cry my pain